Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm Michael Mangello, and today we are being joined by Jean-Michel Rabaté, author most recently of uh, An Introduction to Literature and Psychoanalysis. Thank you for joining us, Professor Rabaté. Thank you, Michael, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me as well. Um, I'd like to begin by asking the following question. Um, how did you begin writing this book? Where was the interest for you? The interest for me was pedagogical. I'd seen many books tackling this theme. And in our university, University of Pennsylvania, we have now a new minor in psychoanalysis and culture. And my when I looked at all those books, I saw either books that were really too simplistic, like basic Freudianism, explain to children that kind of thing or highly should I say advanced in terms of schools so I wanted to give a survey of all the schools without uh, you know I'm closer to Lacan as is I think clear but I didn't want this to be a Lacanian book I'd done like more than 10 years ago a book on Lacan literature I didn't want that to be the same book it's a different book and I wanted to be as simple as I could without dumbing it down. That was my aim. So this is why you may have seen at the end, there are lots of concepts that I tried to explain as simply as I can. That took me actually most time to do the index and the, 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 what I, I call the, the, the concepts and so on, because really the issue was to make complicated notions uh, like castration, the fairies, and so on, more or less, I hope, understandable. You tell me whether <laughs> this has worked. <laughs> no, I, I, I believe you succeeded. Uh, and it's interesting because you describe these concepts as they exist between schools. So as you said, it's not simply Lacanian That's it. That's it. reading. Um, in fact, uh, you conclude um, that literature makes us, in your phrase, ambassadors of the unconscious, Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering uh, who's unconscious. So the author's particular unconscious, as in psychobiography, the collective unconscious, as in Jung, or the realm of the big other in a sort of Lacanian reading? Yeah, you see, that's a good question. And I think neither. Why? Because it's not the collective unconscious. I, I, I'm not Jungian in that sense, and I don't believe in a collective unconscious. It is not the Lacanian discourse of the other because for Lacan it means basically all of language and culture so it's a little too broad it is not the unconscious of the author because I I try to show that for Freud it would have been that answer Freud believed that you could get to the unconscious of the author and as we know most of the earlier approaches to literature, I, I mentioned Marie Bonaparte on Poe, 
is a psychobiography. And it's an interesting genre, but I don't think this is what I'm arguing for. I would say simply to answer that it is Freud's concept of the unconscious. And I think that through literature, if we understand Freud's working with literature, one understands Freud's concept of the unconscious and one can penetrate his idea of the unconscious in the same way as one could do this, let's say, by interpreting a very important dream one has had. And so my idea at the end of this book is if one understands the ideas of Freud, of Lacan, and uh, all the people who have been engaged in, at times, very aggressive dialogue, clearly, one can know that one can go there. <laughs> See this idea of Freud would say in German, Andere Schauplatz. This is another place, and literature can allow us to go there. I, I, when I say Freud's unconscious, I could... Also add, you know, Borges unconscious, Derrida's unconscious, meaning people who have meditated on literature or on the library, as it were. Mm -hmm. But it allows us to go into the library with a different agenda, a different series of protocols, of tasks, of quests, and so on. Right, and, and on the note of... Um combining the ideas of a library and unconscious, you have uh, a very riveting passage in your book, a chapter on Joyce. Yes, right. Uh, Joyce as a sort of symptom of literature. Uh, yeah. could, could you talk a bit about how um, Joyce is a, a symptom of, of literature? Yeah. And that, that is obviously mostly Lacan's idea. When I was a student, I was there when Lacan gave his first talk on Joyce, and it was very weird, because at that time, I think Lacan had become as difficult to read as the later Joyce of Finnegan's Wake, and I've always worked on both. I did my dissertation mostly on Joyce, and I've written many books on Joyce, but at the same time, uh, being a Joyce specialist in Paris was fantastic, because all the Lacanian schools wanted to learn about Joyce because of Lacan and because of Finnegan's Wake. It was a little funny to see all those French analysts whose English was often very, very rudimentary who were trying to read Finnegan's Wake, which is perhaps the most difficult book in the English language, and because for them it was an issue of life or death, they needed to understand Finnegan's Wake in order to understand what Lacan was saying about the symptom. And so it's a very curious convergence of the later Lacan, who had met Joyce when he was a young man, returning to Joyce and becoming Joyce, as it were. And for Lacan, and I think it's a very good, interesting idea, what you have with Joyce is this idea that Joyce becomes literature. For people who have read Ulysses, it's already understandable. You may know that in Ulysses, there's one chapter called Oxen of the Sun, where Joyce basically writes with all the stars in the order of their historical appearance of English literature. So Joyce really wanted to have a sort of compilation, a summation of literature. For Lacan, it was a more specific idea. He didn't want to say, like Freud, that by looking 
at an author biographically, you will understand the link between a symptom and the creation. That's classical Freudianism. To, for instance, to return to the example of Poe, you could say that Poe is always writing horror stories because he lost his mother when he was a kid and he needed sublimate, a sublimation of those figures. And the enemy for Marie Bonaparte is always the bad stepfather, Alan, and so on. This would be a pure symptom. For Lacan facing Joyce, it is idea that Joyce, by having this wish to become, let's say, better than Shakespeare, fundamentally, or like Dante, the enormous ego, enormous ambition, puts his ego in the place of literature and becomes a sort of not, nothing, all the past and the tradition, and this is what Lacan calls a symptom. But this remains a sort of very broad idea. But Lacan analyzes very, very clearly in terms of his own logic. He assumes that what he calls the three registers, the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary, were unnoted for people like Joyce. He sees this in Joyce's body, and then he assumes that Joyce writes in order to re the three realms. So you understand why the French Parisians needed to get it, uh, because it was a new concept, not only in terms of literature, but I would say a clinical concept. And many people are using it a lot today. To understand, for instance, uh, I know many friends who use it to understand the clinic of transsexualism, the, uh, a transsexual transformation of the body is a way of rewriting oneself. Like Joyce rewrote himself in terms of literature. Right. Throughout the book, you um, use the poles of hysteria and paranoia yeah. to, to discuss literature. And I was wondering um, if you could talk about those two poles in relation to Joyce. So um, for those who haven't read the book, um, hysteria right. becomes associated with surrealism, a certain sort of surrealism uh, that places an emphasis on spontaneous language, yeah. um, whereas paranoia takes on a sort of different shape. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, from the surrealists to the feminists, at least the French feminists of the 70s and 80s, hysteria was good. Uh, seems there's a... And they wanted to reclaim hysteria. Oh, also, sorry, oh. Uh, can you, there's sorry. a little glitch here. Yeah. You can, sorry, there was a slight glitch. Would you mind starting over from the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the surrealists huh? uh, in the 20s and the French feminists in the 60s and 70s all claimed hysteria as a sort of model of liberation and a sort of romantic idea that the hysteric was someone who was often a woman who would escape from patriarchy and be seductive and reject the mastery of official knowledge. I, I quote a very interesting text by Breton uh, and Aragon uh, from 1928 in praise of hysteria, they celebrate hysteria, they say, as a poetic invention. 
the um, Ellen Sixou uh, in the 70s wrote a play also on Dora, somehow Dora, portrait of Dora. Dora was seen slapping Freud <laughs> and putting back in place Freud having misunderstood Dora and so on. We know if we go back to the invention of psychoanalysis that indeed Freud invented psychoanalysis thanks to the hysterics. For, of course, for Freud, the hysterics are not as creative as that. But in my own historical approach, one can say that, yes, historically speaking, it is through hysteria that Freud understood something that is fundamental and that I think nobody who's, uh, who's followed after had contested that a hysteric has something in his or her body that is also made up of language. See, so it shows where psychoanalysis finds its first point of insertion, the fact that a hysteric could uh, think, I can't stand it, and then she falls because she can't stand. Uh, I am blind to this and becomes really blind in one eye or the, the two eyes. That kind of sudden conversion is what makes hysteria so interesting. But in terms of the, uh, the avant-garde, let's say, mostly with surrealism, what I observe is this. In the 20s, they take hysteria as the new form and they imagine, and it was, of course, a little annoying for Freud, they imagine that the hysterics are all beautiful women who sleep with the doctors at the Salpetriere, which is a hospital, not exactly the case, and they were actually really suffering themselves. But then what I notice is this. In the 30s, there is a shift, even in the avant-garde, that has to do with politics and the... I would say the march to the Second World War, the politicization of the right and the left, there is a drift towards paranoia. And paranoia here, I think, is less creative, is less on the side of, say, poetry, the body, than on the side of what Freud recognized as a system. And you see, in what I, I would want to, to do, I didn't do it in, in the book because it would have been a little complicated, but all these are, are couples. Mm -hmm. See, the hysteric is always associated with the person he or she takes as a master. But as Lacan said very well, the hysteric looks for a master she can dominate. You see? And so there is this couple in Lacanian theory, the master and the hysteric, the hysteric and the master. Let's say, historically speaking, Charcot and the young women he was hypnotizing and who had those crises and so on. What is the couple of paranoia? The couple of paranoia is more mystifying because it is the psychoanalyst and the paranoiac. As Freud himself said, when he worked on the famous case of Schreber, and Schreber, uh, really for Freudians, is the typical case of paranoia. Why? Because Schreber, according to Freud, had to invent a whole new religion in order to allow for his same-sex libidinal investment, perhaps on a doctor, to be possible, to be expressed. So, there, 
as Freud said, the system, the delirious system of Schreber looks very much like my own system. And in a sense, uh, Freud says, I succeeded where the paranoia failed, meaning that I, Freud, managed to have a system in which entities that are almost mythological, like libido, uh, desire, were already there in Schreber's delirium. Schreber's delirium was that his body was touched by enjoyment all the time and so on. And that's why I say it's not very different from Freud's own idea of the psyche of the body and so on. See, it's a, it's a sort of crazy religious delirium that is a little too close to the theory of metapsychology of psychoanalysis. Right, and it seems as though in both cases paranoia is uh, attempting to erect, um, if not a rigid, then a, a stable system. That's it. We're- paranoia, paranoia, and this is what you find with Schreber. See, it is, I, I love this book, uh, Schreber's Memoirs. It's very funny, it's weird, but you can see that he invents a whole religion with an evil god who cannot even let him go to the bathroom, an evil god who wants to transform him into a woman, an evil god who wants to have sex with him to regenerate the human race. Really completely delirious things. But in my own experience, having worked with a few psychoanalysts, uh, at least in France, quite common, mostly with older women, at least in France, you, you find many, many types of delirium in in hospitals and so on. It is still very close to either God as an evil persecutor or let's say aliens who will invade you, body snatchers or the CIA or Al-Qaeda. You know, all these huge conspiration theories are part of paranoia and it's quite common. And you mentioned uh, an anecdote of a psychoanalyst who um, makes a joke to his paranoid patients. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Uh, because the joke highlights uh, a degree of ambiguity in communication. Exactly. The paranoid yeah, yeah. fever is broken. Um, that's it, that's it. It's Roustan. Yeah, I quote the title of this excellent book, How to Make a Paranoid Laugh. And he explains that he once had a paranoid patient and who was stuck in his delirium. And one day he managed to say something that went a little over the top and the patient was able to laugh. And then that was a sign. It doesn't mean that he cured him by making him laugh, but the fact that the paranoid patient could laugh was a sign that he was on the way to be, to be better. And then indeed he felt much better after that. Um, from a literary perspective, yes. uh, ambiguity is uh to be, to be prized, there's you know, uh, William Epson's Seven Types of Ambiguity. Ambiguity is yeah. seen as a sort of poetic yes. um, yeah. trait. So uh, given that it's um, juxtaposed uh, against paranoia, uh, I was wondering, to what degree would you say that paranoia juxtaposed to ambiguity and what the surrealists would call poetic hysteria, to what degree is paranoia a creative act. Um, another way of asking is, are there any sort of paranoid creative works? Could one think of, say, 
um, Ulysses as paranoid trying to fit everything into one book? Ah, that's a good question. I, I don't. I wouldn't put Ulysses on the side of paranoia, but as we know, Joyce had a certain proximity. As he said, a thin sheet separates this book from madness. He was really aware that he wasn't too far, and indeed, his daughter was psychotic. Um, but the, you, you have a very good point about ambiguity because psychoanalysis, at least the way Freud practices it, and, and Lacan and the Lacanians, I think the Freudians and the Lacanians have the same practice, and the Jungians as well somehow, uh, use ambiguity a lot. Why? Because it's a way of sending back to the patient who is, say, on the couch, another awareness of a word that is used. And so by making a pun, that can be a joke, for instance, in the case of the paradox, uh, you can send back to the patient something that could be either self-destructive or dangerously uh, religious in a crazy a para-religious system uh, in which, for instance, you take signifiers of uh, Schreber and then try to show him that uh, this God is in fact really his terrifying father, that kind of thing. But if you only use language, which is Freud's idea, that in psychoanalysis, basically you have a patient who will be on the couch and will speak, and one hopes understand, but in uh, more contemporary practices, you can't just tell a patient, well, sorry, you're in love with your father or your mother, you see, and then what is often done is the use of ambiguity to create ambiguity, just simply, mostly with paranoia, to show that any word will have more than one meaning. You see, the danger of the paranoid uh, systematization is that words will have uh, one fixed meaning. And, for instance, you know, a paranoiac person who will have... Uh, I, I knew one uh, when I lived in France uh, uh, who, and I had to help uh, an American student who had to really leave uh, the apartment he was living in uh, suddenly used the word radio because he was listening to the radio a lot, and uh, he understood after a while that radio meant for this person to be connected with the aliens, and the aliens were telling him that this American student was one of theirs and uh, had to be killed. Mm-hmm. You see, so uh, why, I never knew, but it's obvious that if that person can be treated the psychoanalyst will try to see, well, why radio? What does it mean, radio? What kind of, okay, you know, that kind of introducing other meanings, a little like, you know, what Freud did with these case studies. I don't know whether you've read the case of uh, the rat man. Uh, Freud basically takes one word, <laughs> rat, <laughs> and then unfolds it, unfolds it, unfolds it, until it contains everything. Right, and it's this act of unfolding that you would associate with literature. With literature, and I think Freud understood this via literature. Mm-hmm. That it's the practice of literature, as we know, if we understand the poem, 
basically we understand that the metaphor is at least two meanings, if not more, and that chains of images produce keep reverberating in our in our minds. And Freud was able to understand how this could be used clinically. Right, and it's interesting that um, Jung, writing his vitriolic review of Ulysses, um, associates to a degree, through the figure of Moses, perhaps, yes. Joyce himself with Freud. With Freud. That's so bizarre. Yeah. yeah. You see, what is interesting, and I think, you know, Jung, when you, you have the Jungians and the non-Jungians, and Jung has been a little ostracized by the Freudians and the Lacanians and so on. I personally, and I'm not a psychoanalyst, like the earlier, earlier Jung very much. And it's clear that, in a sense, he was an extremely intelligent man uh, who could read Ulysses. Uh, and that's why he wrote this introduction to Ulysses. He had read it. I don't think that Freud, being much more a man of the 19th century, would have been able to read Ulysses, for instance. Freud could read the Viennese writers of his generation, but he couldn't understand surrealism. He couldn't understand the art of the 30s and so on. He was a little too old and so on. Whereas Jung had that amazing capacity of empathy and absorption and intelligence. I don't agree with his assessment of Ulysses, but he thought that he saw in Ulysses something that revealed the disease of the daughter Lucia Joyce, whom he had begun to treat. And what is interesting is that Joyce, who was very skeptical about psychoanalysis, nevertheless was hoping that Jung could cure his daughter. You have a small section um, in this chapter in which you compare Lacan and Jung. Yeah. Um, could you talk a bit about the similarities between them? Yeah, yeah, because Lacan is not very clear why went to see Jung very early, uh, and it is through Lacan that we have this amazing statement that Freud would have said when he arrived to New York in 1909, Freud would have said, and you find it in all the films and so on, they don't know we are bringing the plague, which is so funny, so cynical and hilarious. But if you retrace who said that to whom, it was in fact Jung who told Lacan in the 30s, so much later, that Freud had said that in 1909. No one else has ever quoted that sentence. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting moment. Why did Lacan go and see Jung? Uh, it's at that time, Lacan had had a clash with the classical Freudians, and he, he hadn't been expelled yet, but already in 1936, he had given his first paper, and he didn't like the way he was treated, they cut him, they didn't understand what he had to say, and he thought, oh, this old, the old guard of psychoanalysts, already old, is not for me, and he went to see you as a sort of dissident leader, and uh, but he didn't remain a Jungian. But it, it is it is an interesting moment that Jung, being this you know the the disciple elected by Freud, and then fought horribly with Freud, 
And I, I don't have the time in the book to analyze this at length, but such an amazing story. Uh, and really, I don't know whether you've read the exchange of letters mm-hmm. between Jung and Freud. It's really a duel. It's a, and both of them really hit very hard the other. Uh, it's amazing. And the whole um, you know, fight was catalyzed yes. through an improper use of language, through a slip of the pen. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. And Jung indeed recognized in Freud a wish to be the master and to be the father. And he was right there. And we know that Freud had refused to be to have a dream analyzed by Jung. And he was afraid of what Jung might see in him. Uh, at the same time, Freud was totally right in seeing in, in Jung somebody who uh, would sell out on the important issue of sexuality. Because Jung uh, was more religious in a sense and more repressed and so on. Strangely enough, but we could feel that Jung, uh, also for pragmatic reasons, would somehow yield on those very important issues that for Freud were absolutely foundational. So for Freud, if you if you left aside the issue of sexuality libido, then you were not a psychoanalyst. Now, you claim um, elsewhere in the book, uh, you claim that the uncanny might well be today's privileged mode of access to the sublime. And mm-hmm. I found that a very stimulating idea, so I wanted to ask uh, what you think it might be about our current cultural climate that renders us uniquely susceptible to the uncanny now. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, the uncanny is very hard to define, but it's what Freud did best in terms of approach to literature. This essay on the uncanny is endlessly suggestive, and uh, he analyzes a number of texts, mostly uh, a gothic story by Hoffman uh, and about uh, the return of a sort of the animation of a doll. Uh, it's a, an extraordinary subtle text. And I, I'm, I'm trying to oppose this using a number of examples to a certain notion that for a while I had worked with, which is that of the sublime. And the sublime, like the uncanny, is a sort of paradox in itself. The uncanny, for Freud, means that it is both home and not home. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a word that has antithetical meanings, as he says. Uh, the sublime is also, if we think of the classical sublime in Kant or Longinus, it is the idea that you are brought to a certain vision of, say, uh, uh, a storm, a fire, and then you realize that it's too much. You cannot keep the vision. It exceeds your capacities of understanding and so on in the famous analysis. In my, in my field, let's say, theory, lit- literary studies, People worked a lot with the sublime in the 1980s and 90s. Why? Because the sublime was connected with issues of trauma, the unpresentable, the unsayable, and so on. Today, I think there is a little bit uh, a tiredness facing the sublime and the feeling that maybe it cannot carry 
as much weight as it used to, because perhaps we've had too much of the, you know, the idea that, for instance, trauma is the pure, unspeakable, and so on. Uh, and the uncanny keeps something of that traumatic return to the womb or the uh, unsayable seduction, but it leaves it perhaps to be contemplated a little more. One cannot say immediately, mm-hmm. as with Kant. You know, with Kant, the main idea of the sublime is that because we discover that we are just puny little beings facing a big mountain or a disaster, we then have to turn inward and we'll understand the moral law in our hearts and so on. I don't think we can follow that logic so easily today. Whereas when Freud says, oh, you see, all this is about the trembling of the meaning and then you're returning to something hidden that comes back in you and it's always hesitating on the threshold, we can relate much more to that. That's why I try to say, and I give examples, uh, I give examples, uh, the most for me telling example was that moment that many people somehow either loved or hated of an artist uh, I met in New York, actually, I hadn't seen her in Paris, a French artist I like a lot, Sophie Kahl, who had managed to film the moment when her mother died and then showed it in Venice at the Biennale. And I was there when she had that show, saw it, and I thought that maybe is going a little too far. Can you make a spectacle of the death of your mother and so on? I didn't understand it very well then. I was just shocked at a slightly knee-jerk reaction, a little stupid. No, one shouldn't do that. And then there was another show that she was presenting very funny on how to stage. She had presented the breakup letter from a former lover and so on. So that was very, very different. Then thinking back to it and having meditated a little more, I saw that what she had done was indeed very interesting and was much more on the side of the uncanny than on the side of the sublime. Some of my friends who had loved it the first time said, oh, this is sublime. You see, she shows that the death of the mother cannot be shown, but can be shown at the same time. No, I think she shows that death is always uncanny. And there's always somehow this moment that catches you and you think, oh, yeah, what am I? what is my link to my own death and to the death of people I love? So this is more the uncanny question. See, that's interesting. I'd like to relate the uh, discussion of the uncanny death and literature because towards the, towards the end of your book, you say that the textualization of the unconscious has some relationship to, to the death drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I see something that appears here. Uh, no, no. Uh, good, no, no, just uh, what did uh, Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, this is a, a central idea for me. And I haven't developed it in that book, but in, in uh, another book uh, called Crimes of the Future, I tried to deal with this. And it is very important in so far as psychoanalysis itself is concerned, this issue of the death, death drive, that so many analysts refuse and philosophers refuse today. 
and many reduce it to Freud's pessimism after the First World War, the fact that he lost the, the, the daughter, he loved Sophie, and so on. Yes, it is true. Well, this is true. But Freud, nevertheless, there is this idea, central idea, that there is something like the, the death drive. But two thinkers I really trust and like, Adorno and Lacan, this is a key in the Freudian system. Most American psychoanalysts, those who started working in New York in the 30s and so on, reject the idea of the death drive. It didn't fit very well with, you know, the meliorist idea that you could be a counselor and you will take people out of their glooms and make them become good machines, uh, to work in society and make money and so on. You don't want to tell them too much about the death drive. But if you look at Adorno and if you look at Lacan, on the contrary, for them, they understand that in Freud, there is something like the very structure of the drive is indicated by the death drive. It doesn't mean that Freud believes that everything is going to be entropic, that the aim of Life is death. He almost suggests that in Beyond the Pleasure Principle and then turns away, saying, no, not at all. It must be something else. And so this death drive is, I think, something that literature somehow keeps, obviously, for us. First of all, we cannot forget when we read literature that most of the time we read texts by dead people, okay? And so we have this past, the past of the words used by Shakespeare and so on. And even if we don't know who Shakespeare was, we know that he's dead, whoever he was, you know. And it's more a Derridian idea, by which I mean Jacques Derrida, who was my, my teacher in France, was always insisted on this, this intimate link between writing as the material constituent of literature and death, that writing has always been somehow uh, suppressed or seen as either just an instrument or a dangerous resurgence of materiality because writing is indeed not the spirit. The spirit is alive, the letter is dead, as the saying goes. The Derrida and Lacan had paved the way, overturned this by showing that, yes, there is this death in language, and as Lacan shows at some point, it is via this death in language that one can learn about lack, not being there, castration, and understanding generations, and many important issues that somehow are materially brought back to us by literature as such. It's a little what I was trying to say when you, you quoted this idea of ambassadors of the unconscious, meaning literature as the unconscious. It is the fact that somebody who reads with these psychoanalytic uh, concepts in mind will somehow be aware that you can go through death and come back. You know, the uh, Orpheus uh, as the fundamental myth of poetry uh, Orpheus is the only mortal who can go to hell in classical mythology 
and come back. Of course, I'm happy he loses the wife he almost brought back, as the old story goes. But um, uh, it's also because, you know, this is also the uncanny. And poor Orpheus, um, how was he uh, sure that she hadn't been transformed into some kind of uh, bloodthirsty ghost? Or, or vampire, <laughs> to, to think of it in gothic terms. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's funny that you bring up um, Lacan and Derrida um, uh, on on the same side on this issue of writing being a sort of death, because one of their larger disagreements was over um, Lacan's reading of the purloined letter You're and right. the literariness of text. Yeah. Would you mind uh, characterizing that? Yeah. Uh, squabble between them, and also uh, saying where you fall on on that issue. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it is it is very important because, in a sense, this is the moment when it looked as if they were more or less in agreement, and um, Lacan believed that somehow Derrida could become his philosopher. We we have uh, the story in Rodinesco's uh, biography of Lacan of the dinner when Lacan somehow made an offer to Derrida, but then he was very arrogant, obnoxious, and Derrida didn't like Lacan, and it started like that. But then also Derrida had these philosophical questions to ask Lacan. And what it's endlessly fascinating, this uh, is, there's a whole collection of the essays written about this, because what you can see is Lacan, who uses... Poe's Perloin letter to introduce what was his only real book called Ecri Writings. Um, and this seminar is for him an introduction into the main concepts of his theory. The letter, the idea of the we don't know what there is in that famous Perloin letter. It circulates, it feminizes people and so on. And then Derrida in a famous essay, attack Lacan with one central reproach, saying, aha, we all know what this letter means. It means that it is the phallus. Okay. And interestingly, it's not so wrong, because for many Lacanians, this is what Lacan wanted to say, but happily for him, he never says it in this essay. So I have to say that in this debate, I fall on the side of Lacan. Because I think that, and this, this is not, I'm not the Shoshana Fellman and many others have demonstrated that, uh, and um, not only Shoshana Fellman, but um, anyway, the, a few commentators, uh, that somehow Derrida was, without knowing it, brought into the machine of repetition in which Lacan was a sort of observer. Lacan was part of this machine as well. But I think here Derrida makes a number of reproaches that are a little exaggerated, as if motivated by a sort of animus. At the same time, what Derrida brings to the Lacanians is a reminder that one should not indeed translate the content of the letter. We don't know what the content of the letter is. And it would be a mistake to say it is castration, fabulous femininity, whatever. Uh, if it works, it has to remain a pure signifier 
we will never know. So one needs to know the story itself. But uh, there is an exchange, and finally Dupin steals the famous letter, replaces it with an almost identical document with a different with a quote, and gives it back to the Queen. We we suppose. But the, the other person who had well seen this was Barbara Johnson, uh, who died recently. Was at uh, um, I think she was at uh, Harvard. Uh, and she also understood that somehow, even though she was close to Derrida, Derrida had got himself, in a way, uh, I would say, caught up and, and had gone too far. And uh, for once, had not been totally in control of what he wanted to say. But the later, the later Lacan uh, uh, forgot a little what he had said earlier and fell back into something that Derrida had always denounced, which is logocentrism. And there one needs Derrida. For me, it is not at all incompatible to be a Derridian and a Lacanian. I've always been both, knowing very well that there was this uh, fight. And so Derrida was my, my uh, supervisor at some point. Uh, but um, now that both Lacan and Derrida have been dead for a while, it's interesting to see that uh, there is a large moment in their careers when they agree fully and this uh, little fight doesn't take away the fact that they agree on many, many issues. Um, as public intellectuals, do you think that um, Jacques Derrida and uh, Jacques Lacan occupied a space that's not being occupied now? Do you see similar figures today working to bring literature into analysis or pulling from analysis and applying it to larger semiotic problems? Well, I would say that they've had very different, how should I say, political roles um, in the sense that I see Lacan as, at least in France mostly, a whole generation of the leftists of 68, the late 60s, were saved, I would say, by Lacan. And I, I see this as very important if I compare what happened to France with what happened to Italy and Germany, uh, very similar cultures at that time. But in Germany and Italy, you had the very the extreme right and the extreme left and brigades and so on, killing people, little like the weatherman in the U.S., all that generation in France was treated by Lacan and his school. And uh, it's very important to understand the political side of Lacan. It's something that uh, Slavoj Zizek has always uh, reminded us of, that in Lacan there was this friendship with Althusser and a certain Marxism, and that basically Althusser's Marxism and Lacan's Freudianism are more or less... I would say, in sync, if they are not identical, they both attack the idea of ideology, faith, false consciousness, meconnaissance, and all those things that you find. And Zizek has understood that very, very well. Uh, Derrida's impact has, I think, not stopped, because that is more what happened then. And then there was the problem for Lacan of the school and the fact that he disbanded his own school in 1980 
And uh, then there was an explosion of the Lacanian subgroups and so on. So the situation today is a little different. And it's interesting from my own perspective because it, it reappears here and there. It's very powerful in South America, Central America, for instance, huge in Brazil, in Argentina, in Europe, a little on the way, almost non-existent in the U.S., which is surprising. Whereas if you take someone like Derrida, you could say that also the high moment of high theory of deconstruction has gone, but what Derrida has left perhaps is this uh, ethical imperative, the, the idea of uh, uh, looking at foundational issues like justice, uh, race, uh, gender, and so on. For me, someone like Judith Butler comes entirely out of Derrida. Right, and to an extent is carried on by other groups uh, involved yes. in critical theory or identity That's politics. It. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, um, I, I wish we had more time. We're uh, not out yet, but we're running out. So um, I'd like to fit this one question in. Um, sure, sure. We, we mentioned uh, trauma earlier. Yes. And um, in your index, uh, you describe perversion, which tells us about desire and trauma, the trauma of desire and the desire for the repetition of the primal trauma. Um, and expounding on the idea of perversity, you define the Freudian norm as human desire conditioned by the threat of castration and cite sadism, masochism, and fetishism as perversion because they seek to bypass the law of castration. Um, could you elaborate a bit on this point of, of what makes a sort of pleasure perverse or uh, in other words, um, do not all pleasures seek in some way to bypass uh, castration? Yeah, that's a good question. I think this shows that one needs two terms. And here I believe that Lacan was right to invent the term of jouissance. See, uh, uh, he speaks sometimes of uh, plus de jouir, translating lust, which is what Freud uses, and lust is often translated as pleasure, the pleasure principle, okay, lust principle. But Lacan needed plaisir and jouissance in French. Like in English, you would say pleasure, often one uses jouissance now, or enjoyment. And so I would say that for Freud, pleasure is not necessarily on the side of an excess, uh, because there is the principle of pleasure, and it is, in a sense, a pleasure that can be sanctioned by society. Of course, society is marked by a primal repression and one will not enjoy fully. So there's always, pleasure is always limited by the constraints of living in society. But insofar as pleasure is manifested, let's say, by the infant, uh, at the breast, and so on. This is not, for Freud, that first pleasure, necessarily. We cannot imagine that uh, sucking the breast of the mother is already the Oedipal drama. There is a pre-Oedipal pleasure, as it were, for Freud. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes more complicated, of course. But otherwise, there is this danger. There's a famous anecdote in the 18th century in France. A young woman who was talking to a priest, oh, eating those strawberries... It's so good, it must be a sin. You know, <laughs> this is the function of religion, uh, to heighten pleasure by saying, oh, strawberries, mm. <laughs> a 
the same. Uh, for Lacan, he needed to invent jouissance. So jouissance is indeed on the side of transgression, because jouissance is, uh, as Lacan says, it begins with tickling and it ends with burning the house of your neighbor. Uh, so it is transgressive. It is on the side of all those uh, very dangerous uh, political drifts and so on. But insofar as we talk about uh, the structure of perversion, the book that I recommend that I find really interesting is Rudinesco's book on a history of perversion because she shows that perversion is not for Freud something that is bad because we all have been perverts as children, uh, famous uh, polymorphous perverse that we've all known the anal, sadistic, and so on stages, and that when one is called a pervert in the banal sense, it's just somebody who has a tendency to return to that moment, like, uh, you know, anal, or sadism is an, an analogy, and so on are connected for Freud. But uh, for Lacan, you need something a little more, this principle that is both social, see this idea that Lacan is always bringing to the fore that society is not saying you cannot have pleasure, but it's saying you need to have more pleasure. <laughs> and there you have this mechanism of capitalism that tells you, you think you have pleasure? No, no, this pleasure is not good. Your neighbor has more pleasure than you have. So enjoy more. And this order to enjoy is what Lacan calls jouissance. Mm-hmm. And so there you have something that is both manipulated by society, but at the opposite of what Freud saw. Freud saw this idea of first repression and society prevents us from really enjoying fully. Lacan inversed this and said society in late capitalism tells you, you want more pleasure? You think you have pleasure? You don't. And then you have to produce more and so on. Yeah, it's interesting. You discussed the late capitalist aspect of it um, in your essay on the history of perversion. Um, and you claim that in a sort of culture of permissiveness that late capitalism furnishes, uh, especially pornographically, um, that there are the uh, effects of perversity, but yep. we remain incapable of placing a finger on some origin, uh, some, some original perverseness. Yeah. Uh, I'm here really, I'm really quoting Grodinesco's book on, on that issue. Uh, and she, she, her analysis is perfect. Uh, she shows that indeed this culture of, let's say, pornography on the internet and hooking up and so on will produce new, new symptoms because then people will need somehow to have this idea, where is the law? Where is something like the law? Does that apply? Uh, who will uh, be the, let's say, you know, we don't really believe in the Freudian father, but who who is on the side of the law facing this impression that anything can go? Mm-hmm. And uh, at least I, I follow Odinesco, who shows that you can be Freudian, and with Freud, we understand that there is no condemnation of homosexuality or fetishism and so on, because these are absolutely normal occurrences. But you can also write a history of, let's say, uh, the evolution from the Middle Ages to the Holocaust and so on, by using those terms, you know, a, a, a certain perversion 
uh, uh, radical evil in human nature can be can be there clearly. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Robert. You know, very much appreciated. Um, Before we go, uh, are there any other are there any other books that you're working on uh, right now? Yes, I am. uh, I've just published. I mean, I will publish soon two books. There's a book on Beckett, uh, and it's called Sink Pig. Uh, and the, the cover is like pig hair, so it's easy to see. Uh, the other book is a book that is more a collection of essays um, that is called The Pathos of Distance and uh, on the idea of affects. And there's a chapter on psychoanalytic affects, uh, that the idea that in psychoanalysis, affect theory should play a larger role than it has done so far. So that's one of the things. But these two books should be published more or less at the same time in uh, May of this year. So Fantastic. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. eagerly await okay. books from you. And, um, talk yeah. about them one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. It's You're been welcome. a great thank interview. Have a good uh, Valentine's Day. We'll see you in all. <laughs> This is today. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you. Um, from New Books in Psychoanalysis, this is Michael Mangello thanking you for listening.